welcome, welcome to another thrilling episode of Punch Up Your Life, which is the podcast you're listening to right now. Uh, I hope that doesn't surprise you. Uh, if it does, stick around. You're going to like it. Uh, basically, what happens is people come in and they pitch me their lives as if it's a big budget blockbuster Hollywood film. And, and then I punch it up. You know, we zhuzh it up, we add some things, we take away some things, we mostly just riff and have giggles, but there's some self-reflection in there too. It's a pretty good time. Uh, who am I, you ask? Uh, it's me, Andrew Lazat, the host of the show I just explained. No, please, calm down, calm down, that's too much applause. Uh, control yourselves. I'm just one man. Put your clothes back on. Don't get up on the seats. We'll never get the return uh, deposit back from the theater. Uh, it's madness, madness, but I'm touched and I'm humbled, I assure you. So this week's guest is the amazing Jessica Seaburn. Uh, she's a great comedian, but she's recently taken time off to focus on her other career in death. Uh, did you like that? I've been listening to, uh, a lot of Twilight Zone lately, but the death thing was real. Um, it's a good teaser, isn't it? Yeah, now you're curious. You're on the edge of your seat now, aren't you? Huh? Punk? <laughs> Again, a lot of old black and white movies. So, uh, Jessica is the perfect guest for this episode because I find I've been seeking out guests subconsciously for the things that I need to talk about. Uh, and I'm going back home to bury my grandfather soon. Um, not for COVID, for other, he's fine, or he's not fine, he's dead, but he's okay with it. It's been four years. Uh, and it turns out instead of burying him, he's just been tastefully on a mantle somewhere. So we're gonna uh, rectify that. And I've been thinking a lot about him. And uh, he was a really good uh, Irish storyteller. And I, I say Irish because there's specific rhythms to it. It's almost a specific style my dad was actually saying to me that he could hear some of those rhythms in the way I tell a story now, and that made me feel good. Um, and and also, obviously, he influenced me because we're doing a podcast about storytelling right now. So, um, But just because I have that good relationship with him doesn't mean I'm not still thinking about death, and that makes Jessica the perfect guest uh, for this. And you'll find out why... Um, and it's also just that, uh, weirdly enough, Jessica and I met sort of around death, and now we're talking about it, and it's actually a, a, a very pithy, quick episode, um, because we kind of have that shorthand around death that's a part of our relationship, and, uh... So, I hope people don't think we're being glib. We're not. We're just this is the relationship we have with each other, and that's honest. Uh, the other thing, too, is, oh, my goodness, this episode also happened the same day I got uh, the rubber stamp of approval for a bipolar type 2, um, by which I mean no one injected me with it. I already had it, and now they just believe me, so that's good, because uh, now they can't take away my medication. But uh, that's some self-reflection there. I'm also going back for a wedding, and there's probably going to be an ex-girlfriend there. Um, so, there, you know, there's a lot going on with me, and obviously I needed uh, absolution. And, and thank you, Jessica, for that. Uh, we also mentioned 
John B. Duff in the episode, who recently passed. He was the uh, alt-comedy godfather of the Winnipeg uh, scene. And uh, I said he died in January, but uh, he died in February. It was still the same day, though. I got it right, John. I'm still, I am kind of got it together, I swear. And if you were here right now, you'd be telling me this intro was way too long and just, just barraging me with a series of roasts. And uh, I miss that, if I'm being honest. Uh, so if this one is somber off the top, it's because the episode you're about to hear is so silly and exactly what we need. Uh, because I hope, you know, during all this, you're you're still with friends. Or, no, it's COVID. You're not with friends. But you're talking to people and you're reaching out to people. And, and while you're reaching out to those people, you're telling them to like and subscribe to this podcast. Because isn't it good? Didn't we all almost have a sincere moment there? Whew, that's enough of that. So, like and subscribe. Um, and... Remember that love is everywhere you look for it. Um, and I'm going to be sued by Tracy Hamilton's podcast for saying that. But I hope you enjoy the episode because I sure did. Okay, bye. are you? I haven't talked to you in a while. I, I know. Mean, chit-chatted. Yeah. There's there's been some chit-chat. Yeah, I'm I'm doing all right. Um you know, pandemic stuff. Right? <laughs> no, it's 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 a relative question. It's a loaded question now. I know that. It is a loaded question. I also feel like it's it's also like an empty question because I feel like so many people have no answer to it. Like, how's it going? What have you been up to? And it's like, ah, you Are know, you allowed to work again. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I've well, for me, I've been working this whole time from home. So that's been nice. Um, but my hours got cut. So, you know, oh. um, I don't know how it goes. so I've been working out on a restaurant patio. And Ooh. then this week there was a tornado warning <laughs> and people still wanted to sit outside while it was like raining sideways. <laughs> And the only thing you could basically hear was everyone's phone going off with the emergency tornado warnings. Just a and, nice relaxing evening out. Yeah, exactly. So I'm just like, you know what? Being at home with cut hours is not, you know, there are worse things. I went to a restaurant for the first time in months yesterday. And it was kind of an indoor-outdoor situation as well. But I didn't find it relaxing. I don't, I feel no need to recreate that anytime soon. Did Did you go to one of the fun ones where supposedly people have like mannequin dummies sitting at the other tables? What? No. Apparently it's a thing in the States where they, you know, they dress them up, they have wigs and it's just so like you're spaced out between actual people, but you don't feel as weirded out, which I would argue. Would, yeah. Make it worse. <laughs> That sounds really horrifying. Right? <laughs> so, okay. 
I've been wondering how to get into this. I should I should probably explain who you are to give context to the story we're about to tell. Yeah. I'd love to hear you describe me. Because <laughs> oh, okay, that's loaded as well. Um well, you know, you're you're excellent with microphone voice. Um Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> No, so uh, basically, I know you as a comedian who then, have you stopped doing comedy? The last time I did comedy was September. Um, I did um, a party mix show hosted by Abby Falvo. And it was a great time because before that, I had maybe done comedy a handful of times um, between, I guess, 2017, 2018. So when I did the party mix show in September, it was, it was fantastic. I felt like I had a renewed passion for it, but not enough to actually keep doing it after that, I guess. (laughs) Okay. But I mean, and just because this is a podcast, like, I'm not saying you have to be a comedian to be on this show because, uh, have you ever heard the term, they got happy? Has anyone said that to you yet? No, but oh. I have a feeling what it means, but please explain. Well, it means like, hey, I haven't seen Jim in a while. Like, oh, he got married. He's happy now. <laughs> he doesn't need this anymore. <laughs> and I feel like those are the two. You can either have like financial critical success mm-hmm. or you get happy and both are great. Yeah, I guess in, in some ways I did get happy. Um, it's, it's odd to say that. And I didn't really think that was the reason the way that I would say to people is that I had to take some time to work on myself. (laughs) Um, but I did that work and I am happy and I haven't been performing. So maybe, maybe you're onto something there. Oh, no. It, like, right before quarantine, I was on a break, and I mm-hmm. literally messaged uh, Gary, who owns the uh, the comedy bar. I'm like, hey, I'm ready to start my stupid fancy show again. He's like, great. There's a pandemic. Yeah. Uh, so that was an extra thing. But I was balancing out medications and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And uh, actually, weird tone for this episode, I just officially got the rubber stamp of approval that I'm officially bipolar too. So, Congratulations. Right? Now doctors have to believe me. It's, uh, <laughs> it's like a gender reveal party, except I already know what's inside the cake and everyone else just has to accept it. <laughs> I would go to a mental illness reveal party. Reveal party. <laughs> oh. Cut the cake. It's the surprise party of the reveal party genre. (laughs) I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know whether to be supportive or afraid or... Supportive. It's always supportive. So how long have you been sort of waiting for that diagnosis? Um... I would say... Six to nine months. I want to go with, I'm going to go on the earlier side of six Mm -hmm. because I didn't really get a medication that was working out for me until 
January. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, you know, really, this has just been an extra break to, uh, I've just been doing like hardcore therapy and meditation during this whole thing. It's been interesting to hear some similar stories about that, about, you know, of course, this is a terrible, awful time in so many ways. And yet, I think a lot of us were waiting for a time in our life where we had like almost no distraction from trying to heal ourselves. Oh, and and bread. And bread. bread. I have been waiting my whole life to just make bread and eat it and heal trauma. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you're now the Costco of bread. Be your own Costco directly to the masses. <laughs> you control the means of production. <laughs> Take that bourgeoisie. Um, okay, so again, for context, for people, why we're getting into this tone of conversation is after or around your, your uh, graceful descent from comedy uh you became an author specifically about death Mm -hmm. and then you became a death doula yeah so for two years i studied communications and during my schooling there we had to do an independent project and so i wrote a book about grief um and then once i graduated i it was kind of interesting where You know, I'm like, okay, and now to work in marketing, which I have been, but mm, it just didn't quite check all my boxes in terms of what I needed out of work. And I realized that I really wanted to dive more into grief, even though I kind of felt like when I wrote the book, like, and I'm done. All right. Like a, a nice bookend to my grieving process. And now, I don't know, back to normal, I guess. But no, I... Uh, about this time last year, I realized that I had more work to do in this area and that actually, even though it was something very painful for me, it had the um, potential to be incredibly fulfilling and healing too. So uh, I took an online course, just an overview about doula work, death doula work. and I... Yes, and, and, and to the layman, explain that. <laughs> I'm fascinated with it. Well, my the comedian comes out in me when people ask me because I say it's oh, like no, a birth. What? A hundred percent. Because when you were talking about like I was in advertising, but I, what I really wanted to do was death. Like I just imagined you <laughs> writing copy, but making all of the copy somehow relate to death. That's basically what the two years at school was like. Every you know, it wasn't just advertising; it was public relations, journalism. Media Great production. microphone voice. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. But every time we would have an assignment or a project, like no matter how I try to not incorporate death, it was always there, always watching. <laughs> so yes, it is. It is quite amusing. And so when people, you know, people know what a birth doula is usually, which is you know someone who helps someone give birth. Um, a non-medical intervention, more of like moral support for folks who give birth. And I, my joke is that I'm like a birth doula, but I put you back where you came from. (laughs) And uh, so I, there's many things that a death doula can do, but my goal is to help people 
live a better life and have a better death. And the ways that I can do that vary from helping someone, you know, fill out paperwork or, you know, um, make sure that there is someone vigiling with them at the end of their lives. And one passion of mine is to help people tell their story because I think everyone has a story that deserves to be heard. And a lot of people who are dying, that's what they want. They want to tell their life story. So that's something that I... Um... You are on the right podcast. Mm-hmm. So it's like you do more... I'm trying to give a picture. Uh, is it more of a non-denominational, like, last rites? Like the priest going into the hospital and uh, last confession? Or <laughs> do you switch your uh, denomination based on the contract or client uh, yeah it's a good question and you know I haven't been doing this for very long and I haven't um, worked with anyone one-on-one yet I'm still in the learning phase of things but it, the the point is to work with the dying person I don't come in and say here's how to have a good death here's what you should believe or not believe and send them off <laughs> to the, the good night it's not that it's it's working with someone And that's why doulas, they're not for, one doula is not for every single person because different people have different needs. Um, And every person has a different set of beliefs. And so my job is to be respectful of those and not push my own beliefs or my idea of of what a good death looks like. But are you also, because you said paperwork and stuff, are you Mm -hmm. helping them fill out a will and like pick out? a coffin or a, a um yeah that could be part of it um funeral planning um advanced care directives as in what sort of medical intervention you would want funeral planning um will stuff i mean that's legal a legal document so i i believe you do you can have a living will but i believe a lawyer needs to be involved in some context sure it, it's a i'm a guide Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Nope. Uh, that's that's so cool. Um, and I realized saying that I might like, I don't know how people listening to this are going to feel because I'm so comfortable with death. But yeah. I know that's such a trigger word for most people. Absolutely. And I think it. I understand why it's a trigger for so many people. Um, it's scary. I'm not I'm not one to say, oh, it's not scary at all. Why would you be scared? You know, um, it's the unknown. I think the more that we educate ourselves on the dying process, the more that we can feel empowered to make good choices for ourselves. And one thing that I've realized personally is um, I feel... I'm still like curious about death more than fearful, but I I am afraid at times, especially of other people dying around me. But I like that I can take tangible steps to have a better death and to protect the people that I will leave behind by making my uh, my wishes very clear and setting things up and trying to keep things organized because I've talked to so many people who someone has died suddenly or or not suddenly and so many things were not talked about so many things were not 
taken care of. And it is so, so stressful for the people who are living to have to deal with that. And that's not a very good legacy to leave behind. So I think people, whether you're afraid of death or not, I think most people can get behind the notion of leaving behind a, a positive legacy. And a, and a clean slate. So do you also help the rest of the family too? Or are you just uh, there for the dying person? So I think death doulas can can help both the dying and the the living and people who continue to live after someone has died. I am particularly interested in grief support um, because because I talk so much about my own grief. I have a lot of lived experience with that. Um, I am particularly focused on helping people cope with grief. Um, that's going to be my specialty, I think, as I grow professionally. I think that that skill for you, it was noticed for sure in your stand-up, but it almost gets lost in the shuffle with how depressed and bitter a lot of comics are. (laughs) You know, where it's just like, it's Jessica, okay? She's talking about death a lot. Just like everyone's talking about death a lot. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I think about that a lot. I think about the first jokes that I told and sort of my... It's hard to... It's Sometimes it's hard to get back in that mindset because it's almost like you're on another planet. I, I really do feel like people who are freshly bereaved... Oh, God, that sounds awful. <laughs> it sounds like something you get at the grocery store. Yeah. <laughs> people who... sounds like they're newly single like back on a market for a new grandparent ready to mingle <laughs> people who have recently lost someone i know there's some cult- cultures that believe they are almost otherworldly themselves um you know we think of people who are dead as being otherworldly in in heaven or somewhere else and I like the the notion that the people who loved them are kind of stuck between Earth and somewhere else because a part of you does die with them, I believe. And, you know, it sounds very, very tragic and horrible, but I think it is, um, it's, it's love. It's love to lose part of yourself when someone dies. And there's opportunity to gain as well. But so when I think back to that time when I first started comedy, which was very shortly after my best friend died, um, it was very honest, my comedy, but it was probably a lot to take. It was a lot for me to take as the person who was performing it. And I know that a lot of people appreciated it, but I don't blame people for not getting it. (laughs) I don't blame them at all. Right. And but at least you were talking about something profound, because I'm pretty sure every comedian's had the meltdown set. Like, Mm -hmm. I know I for sure went up there while I knew a relationship was collapsing and I just spiraled out on stage and you leave and you feel like, oh, that was for me. It wasn't for them. And I probably should have put jokes in there Mm -hmm. where Uh. at least you were talking about something universal. (laughs) But it is universal to have a relationship collapse. Don't you think? Yeah, they should have been more empathetic. You're right. The audience was wrong. 
How dare they? (laughs) Although, to be fair, when this happened, this was the early stages of the Cavern as a comedy venue when it was still just a punk club. So usually, if someone had a bad set, they had to fight someone after the show. And I remember thinking, like, well, no one wants to fight me. (laughs) Which was probably like, I can't hurt you more than you've already hurt yourself. Which was true. (laughs) Um, Okay, so, uh, first of all, let me preface this with, I have a producer. You can talk about the your friend's death as much or as little as you want just just mm-hmm. give me a little tap out and i'll go like matt cut cut this out sure get rid of it um but the other thing is is yeah we kind of uh we we kind of got to the pitch so i'm just gonna say what your pitch is because yes. it's in front of me great um and i'm gonna say it like i'm a 1920s news reporter <laughs> no Yes. An aimless woman in her 20s meets tragedy when her best friend dies suddenly and in her grief begins performing local stand-up comedy where she finds success, moderate notoriety, and a string of lovers and a drinking uh, habit. What happens when she turns away from the spotlight and... I have, I have the font too small. <laughs> What happens when she turns away from the spotlight and a promising comedy future in order to befriend death instead of running from it? It was pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We got to the bit about the dead friend. I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe this is the wrong voice. I told I warned you it was the wrong voice. But you know what? You stuck to your guns and I respect you for that. Well, because the reason I was doing it is I was doing a kind of a Sunset Boulevard Mm -hmm. thing where, but, but what I realized uh, when, when trying to make notes on this to present to you, Mm -hmm. I don't know what genre this is because like it could easily like, I don't even know what order the movie starts in. Like in my mind, like you could start at your Pink Floyd, the wall moment where you're coming out on stage and there's pyrotechnics and the music is speed metal. And before you take the microphone out of the stand and you spit on a fan in the front row and you get like, (laughs) and then it goes back to like, how did I get here? Who have I become? Like, yeah, I can, I I can definitely see it opening on like the spotlight in my face and like slurring just a titch. Right. And, uh, you know, a, a shot afterward of me. I don't smoke, but, like, I think I should have. I yes. think to... <laughs> Your character can smoke. This is the fiction. Yeah, what... she absolutely had to be chain-smoking in the back, you know, after the show. Yeah, this is about what you wanted to have happen. Okay. Uh, you know, and even even getting the light shone on you at the front, like, is it a metaphor for the mm-hmm. light of death? Totally. Uh, but like, what, what do you want the tone of this to be? Because it could be like garden state. It could be a sincere thing through feelings. Um, you could have a sixth sense thing where you're talking to ghosts. You could have a buddy comedy thing where you're talking to ghosts. You could have a thing with like, are you running from death? 
is is death stalking you is death stalking you in like a romantic or okay no there is no romantic version of stalking but is he like death is your greatest fan and keeps trying to buy you a drink after the show and you slowly fall in love with death okay yeah there's so many options many of those i did not consider i did just i had just this really ridiculous image of me like drinking and hooking up and you know like death is like standing in the room yeah but i like i think the vibe that i think of is more of like that coming of age sort of like garden state indie weirdness like yeah it's it that's my that's my thought process right now but i also that opening shot is almost like an could have like old hollywood film noir potential too right it's it's that i'm ready for my close-up mr deville it's it's the screens that got small or for that matter like as long as i know that that's where we're headed i'm just gonna i'm just gonna rattle off the alternatives i also wrote down please let me hear them well where the ending is just like you know you're about to go up on stage and then death is like at the back of the room like dustin hoffman and the graduate like jessica and you run off the stage and you get on a bus with death and you ride off holding hands uh I mean, I like that one a lot because I would often have these moments, well, probably every time I performed, where I would be, like, looking into the back of the room, looking for someone, something, and not finding it, and also I took the bus, so. Yeah, this is. (laughs) That plays into it, too. This is true. I mean, and and to be fair, everyone's looking for someone. Those lights are are really bright. (laughs) The number one thing I would say to regular people is you can't see the audience. (laughs) You never can. No. Uh, And, uh, you know, as long as we're talking about, like, uh, symbolism and a good death, like, I would almost, if I had to put this in, like, a mythology story, this is very Egyptian- uh, because they, they're very chill about death, and mm-hmm. a good death is necessary to pass over. That's Catholics right. have some of that too, but I'm kind of seeing you as this Osiris figure. Tell uh, me more about Osiris. Well, it's just the, the idea that it's it's neither good no, nor bad. Mm-hmm. It's just, it is what happens, and this is where you're going. Uh, it's like the next state, mm-hmm. stage of your journey, but it's it's a little bit like Greeks and the River Styx, sort of. Yeah. Where, you know, depending on the ritual, you need to give the dying person things so that, like, when they get on the boat to cross the river or they're going to need this blindfold to get past the ghosts or the, the demon dog that's guarding the door. And so it's very important uh, for the ritual, but it's also to... Um, uh, make sure that the uh, that the family fully grieves too. The ritual is just as much of a grieving process to get them through because it's it's almost like something that's like gripped their hearts, mm-hmm. and uh, not like it's draining them, but it's something that needs to be let go of. 
there is a lot of evidence about how healing rituals can be. And I think, um, it, at least in my experience, not having dealt with, you know, I had some grandparents that had passed away and that, not that that is uh, any less upsetting or traumatic, but it was very traumatic to have someone so young die so suddenly and to not be, I was not able to tap into rituals, existing rituals that maybe um, culturally or in my family, I didn't have those things. And so I had to learn how to create those for myself. And um, I think comedy was a healing ritual for me for a time. Well, have you ever been to an Irish wake? Uh, I have not, but I've, I've heard a few things about them. It's, it's, it's of, I'm just accepting that this, uh, is going to be a lighthearted slash morose conversation. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's, I'm, I'm going to put my stamp on it. It's the best one <laughs> because you're also allowed to say the mean shit about the dead person. Like they still owed me money or they couldn't butt out of stuff and, uh, you make fun of them or but it's 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 total sincerity it's it's honestly letting it all out and maybe there is too much drinking but you know i've never felt that that weight gone in such a way as i have after an irish wake interesting yeah i think one of the issues that i personally take with a lot of western quote-unquote funerals is the suppression of emotion um, I think a lot of people don't feel like they can laugh, don't feel like they can have fun or enjoy themselves and therefore the rest of their lives. And we also don't feel like we can show true uh, pain and rage and disbelief and true, true sorrow. Um, and I know there are cultures who wail and wail and pray and scream and some people may see that as like performative or you know and maybe it is but if it's healing then I don't personally give a shit if it's you know like who says that uh performing something can't to heal you um it's just very um a lot of western funerals are just very very repressed and you are Very meant formal. Yes, you are meant to deal with your emotions later when you get home. And that's the problem so often is that, well, what if no one's at home? What if the people at home also repress their emotions? Where are you putting that? Where are you putting that pain? You're if you're like me, you internalize it. I mean, there's two directions to go in this and one is sincere and one is fun. Uh the sincere one is, I think, is in general, what a lot of, and I say this as someone who's been religious my whole life, I think what a lot of religions accidentally moved away from is the sense of community mm -hmm. that comes from a temple, church, whatever you want to call community center. <laughs> uh, there's, uh, it's kind of missing. Yeah. But then also the repression thing can almost be a fun game at a funeral. I don't know if you've ever had to go to a funeral for someone else, like you were dating someone 
and you have to go because they were very close to the person and you're supporting them. Mm -hmm. But it's almost like a fun game to play of like, what's the thing they're all not talking about? Oh, yes. But they're hinting around like, what's the elephant in the room? Oh, absolutely. This is also, and, and still not to be morose, this is a fun game at weddings too. Oh, I, I, I play that every day of my life. <laughs> what are those people not talking about? <laughs> right? I, uh, I'll tell you a secret. Um, <laughs> this might need to be cut out. So because of the pandemic, a lot of funerals are being live streamed. And I believe it was some sort of Reddit post where uh, they were looking for support, this funeral home. Because in order to live stream on YouTube, you have to have a certain number of followers. So I followed this funeral YouTube channel. And sometimes I go and watch the live stream funerals. And uh, it's very interesting. I, I haven't watched too many, but I just I watch for a few minutes and then respectfully leave. But it, it's fascinating to get a glimpse into different people's mourning practices and how they honor their dead and it's technology <laughs> that's that is amazing <laughs> but i mean i relate to it on like what you're doing could still be sweet somber and research for your profession but i know that like what do you what do you youtube when you've had a bad day because i have i have two that always make me feel like I'm doing better than that person. And one is failed marriage proposals. <laughs> because some of them are insane. Mm -hmm. But then two is people crying while eating. If you I watch people crying while eating too. <laughs> it's, it's the best. And, and if I have to pick a favorite food, it's spaghetti. Because you can't slurp the whole noodle before you have to like almost go through that crying breath they're like <gasps> yeah and and then they look like a walrus because they've just got the end of these like noodles there oh yeah i'm alarmed that we both do this <laughs> but the 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 crying while eating one comforts me because it's usually someone else filming them which seems <laughs> cruel but i'm like well at least someone's there and watching them in this time of grief. Is that how you make yourself feel better about it? Very much so. <laughs> and like, I used to work at the old spaghetti factory. Like, that was kind of like, if I had to pick a restaurant, I'm just like, well, yeah, I'm doing this for me. Were you always kind of hoping someone at work would be crying and eating pasta so you could watch them? You know, I have never, I never actually saw that. I saw people having angry fights while still Oof. trying to eat. Oof. Which which feels more embarrassing? Yeah, it does. Because you can't control grief. You're making a conscious choice with anger. I would say well, it's hard to choose. I don't know if you choose anger, but you do choose to fight. Yes. Um, so you can feel angry and still enjoy a good plate of pasta, but you're choosing to fight then you need to take stock of your life and your emotions <laughs> right and and depending what you get that's a heavy meal like that's mm -hmm. not fighting like you kind of just want to sleep and sit <laughs> it's not a good argument you're about to have 
This is a buck wild interview. I'm loving it. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. All right. I'll okay. wrangle it back in. I suppose. Uh, so, how soon after this death mm-hmm. did you jump into stand-up comedy? And was it a thing you were considering pre-death? Yeah, so I had been going to open mics for about a year before my friend died. And I think I had stumbled up on a stage once at, like, Aussie's, a crappy little bar. And uh, I think I read some jokes about cats or something, and then never again. Um, but for then... context to the audience, this is a biker bar that she's getting up and doing cat jokes at. I was extremely drunk and barely remember it. <laughs> and so um, so I think I had told my friend April that I had been wanting to perform and she was very, very supportive and was like, cool, yeah, like that's crazy, do it. Um, and then that was just a few months before she died. So um, she died in October and I started, I did a comedy workshop with some uh, women in March. So was it was, Melanie Darling's workshop? It was Melanie Darling's comedy workshop. Okay, yeah, so I because... believe that was March of the following year. So it was just th- four months between the death and the comedy. Okay, and had you already met um, John Duff at that point? Uh, again, for context, the godfather of the uh, Winnipeg comedy scene. I think I had probably gone to maybe one show at the Cavern. I, I don't remember. But no, I don't. I hadn't performed in front of any of those comedians. Um, I don't think by the time I started performing, I believe John was not hosting the Cavern as, as much. I can't quite recall. But um, when I did start performing, he was he was very encouraging. Sarcastically so, of course. But Yeah, that's just him. That's yeah. not even a... It's like expecting a guitar to not sound like a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> when uh, when I got my head shaved, well, my haircut to support my friend's mother, who after my friend died, her mother um, got breast cancer. And John saw me knowing why I cut all my hair off. And he said, you didn't even shave it bald. You just got a nice haircut, please. <laughs> it was... <laughs> Yeah, but to be fair, he had cancer like four times. So right, it was... like this was probably cancer three or four. At this uh, point. I think it was four. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, so w- were you just full tilt boogie into death talk? Yeah, yeah. My first joke was uh, that I had lost fifteen pounds. And of course, I gave everyone an opportunity to clap for me and then told them that I had stopped eating because my friend died. And then I said that just three more friends until I reach my goal weight. And now, yeah, I think that like set the tone of things. And usually after that first joke, I could tell if people were into it or not. <laughs> oh, in full disclosure, I remember the joke. I was baiting you to tell the joke. Uh, oh, yeah, you it. were. Yes, yes, you were very encouraging of my dark humor. I appreciated it. Um, well, you know, trauma recognizes trauma. <laughs> uh, 
Absolutely. You know, in that weird, like, who's that girl? <laughs> As I'm crying off the side of the stage. Ooh, who is she? Right, but it's also like Mary Tyler Moore, like you're crying, but you're also throwing a hat up in the air. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so um, those were the types of jokes. I, I went fully into it, and I think sometimes I tried to, pad my my set with something a little bit lighthearted because a lot of a lot of comedians were telling me to do that too like oh that's too much oh that's too sad what's the point of that it's just sad and uh i'm not saying they're wrong um but i will sure (laughs) to be fair you do you still need you still need the the joke you still need a punchline but I think if I could go back in time, I would have maybe explored the storytelling options more because those have become very popular in the last few years as well. And, um, you can be as fucking sad as you want. You just need to have some payoff. Oh, right. No, I get that all the time with like mental illness or people are like it's so congratulations. Like it's very hip to be mentally ill right now. Thanks. But I'm like, it's, it's still not. It's like telling a breakup joke where sometimes the audience won't laugh because they, they want to be like, are you okay? Oh yeah. That's the worst. And it's, I wouldn't tell it if I wasn't, which is also kind of a lie. <laughs> I can't promise I'm going to be okay, but I do need you to laugh so that I'm a little bit more okay than I am right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a very specific room. It is. I wish we could have that room whenever we wanted. <laughs> it's padded and we're not allowed <laughs> belts or shoelaces. <laughs> and all your friends are there. <laughs> we can joke. Yeah. I, oof. right? Like death and mental illness. We, we can play that card. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I'll save that to later into the end. So, like, where do you where do you see this movie starting off? Is it is it jumping around? Is it uh, is it is it linear? No, I I don't I don't need linear. I think it's uh, I think it's more interesting to confuse people just a smidge, and I think. The way that my brain kind of jumps around in my day-to-day life, I like the idea of starting off on the stage telling those jokes and and almost (laughs) as the audience is watching, they can feel as maybe uncomfortable as many real-life comedy audiences do when I've performed, right? So they're hearing the jokes, but they don't know me. They're hearing the jokes, but they don't know the history. They don't even know if it's true, and to maybe, you know, as I'm performing, having little flashbacks and the juxtaposition. What interests me about my own story is the juxtaposition of being in the spotlight, smiling, drinking, having, you know, quote unquote, a good time and being more popular, I suppose, than I was in my entire life before this. And then to cut to the really sad bus rides home and like being completely hammered by the time I fell into my bed, possibly knocking over my mom's candles on the way back in, <laughs> you know, like lit this... candles. <laughs> what? Lit no, candles. Not... 
No, like decorative. <laughs> I burned the house down. Okay. No. Well, depending what type of comedy, I would say slapstick and lit candles. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The candles should be definitely lit. Just a small fire that I quickly put out with some, I don't know, sweet and sour sauce from the McDonald's I inevitably got on the way home. <laughs> right. No. And to be fair, if we were doing my movie, I would include every time I've been electrocuted while uh, uh, plugging in a tea kettle. Because, you know what? People paid like 12 bucks to see this. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of, uh, there there has to be some slapstick. Because I am very clumsy, so it it checks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was was the other genre of joke I remember you telling uh, off the top. At the time. And I think you, you've you got three things going for you in this. Uh, one is that if you are cutting around between these three stages of your life, the pre-death uh, comedy and then death doula, it really, you can, the way you cut it together is just going to highlight the theme throughout the three periods of your life. Yeah. But also... And I don't know where you stand on this, but I've never felt that any movie about stand-up comedy truly captured what it's like. Like, it doesn't translate because there's a disingenuousness in the premise that it's not live or it's not a real reaction. Yeah. And, you know, if if you're doing it as a narrative thing to talk about death, like it's almost your inner monologue or for comedy purposes it's that you're bombing Mm -hmm. then stand-up comedy works it it feels really real yeah alex atia was in a movie i believe called parasite locally made and she did an amazing job of being really weird and bombing on stage but the truth is like uh for cinematic reasons it's fantastic but I guess I, I try and be very authentic and like I didn't really bomb. I mean, there was probably a few times where it did not go well. Uh, when comedians bomb, it, it's has potential to be very funny. And I think I think that would work uh, in my movie. Um, but bombing is usually not as dramatic as people who don't do comedy think it is. I think so often bombing is just getting a few chuckles and feeling like people don't get you. To me, that was my more of my experience of bombing where, you know, I, I said the joke's fine, like it was okay, but I didn't feel understood. I didn't feel like anyone related to me. Right. You bared but, your soul. Yeah. And so like punching it up for a movie, yeah, you can have crickets, you can have me crying on stage instead of actually telling my jokes and um but i in my sense of humor i think it's funnier to be like seeing someone bare their soul and just feeling fucking weird after (laughs) like just just awkward and uncomfortable like to me that's very funny that's very amusing oh yeah um but what do you think like what would make for a good movie oh no i mean that that totally works and also what a terrible feeling, especially when you're grieving. Absolutely. And and there are still ways to make that funny, where if you start crying, but you're crying about something that's not about the joke you're telling. So if you're telling a cat joke, but you're just bawling, 
because also the audience might not realize they could be laughing because they think that's part of the joke like like that's the part when you become like a comedy jedi where you're just like i can't stop crying so i better tell this cat joke i love that i think that i don't know i think people i've seen comedians cry on stage and I, I adored it. I mean, obviously they were in pain, so I didn't adore that they were in pain. But I think that takes a level of bravery to choke up on stage and try and keep going. Like, it's amazing. Oh, 100%. So when you went into stand-up, what was the goal you had in mind? I don't know. I really, I think I just didn't want to feel the way I was feeling. I had no goal. It wasn't like... Is this pre-death or post-death? No, this is post-death. I think pre-death, I think pre-death, I just, I had been really isolated for a long time because of my mental health and going out to comedy. I love seeing people laugh. And quite frankly, I saw people doing comedy and I thought, you know, as they're telling the joke, one, I've already thought of the punchline, and then it turned out my punchline was way better than the one they actually said, even though the one I thought of was quite obvious to me. But anyway, so it was very, like, ego-driven. Like, I think I might be funnier than these people. Maybe I should give this a try. I um, even just do this as an exercise watching uh, old movies, is I will mm-hmm. pause it after the setup, and I will say what I think the joke is going to be, and whether I nail it or I come up with something else. Yes, exactly. But I'm a psychopath. <laughs> no, I, I think it's what performers and creators do. They they take in what exists and try and make it better. Um, yeah, I forgot what I was saying. Oh, uh, no, you were you were just listening and seeing if you could write a better joke yes. or if you were even in the ballpark. Yeah, and so, but after April died, I think maybe there was some... Um, residual feelings of wanting to be a performer and trying to be funny. But I I think the main motivator for me was escapism, was just doing something besides going crazy over this impossible thing that has actually happened. Like reality, as I knew it, was completely gone. So who fucking cares what happens? May as well go up on stage and bullshit around. Let's see what happens. It was very defiant of, of who I was before. Like, I was a very reserved, nervous, anxious person. And, I mean, I still am. But most people who knew me before, pre-death, um, when they found out I was actually doing comedy on the scale I was doing it, they it was probably pretty unbelievable to them. Do you think that comedy helped or... Uh hindered or both hindered what or helped what well because helped the grieving process like you understood something about yourself or you threw yourself into another community i don't want to answer the question for you and in terms of hindering like it's it can be kind of a toxic atmosphere just in a lot of mentality, but also just you're around booze a lot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And if you can't control that, not, I'm not, 
in terms of you're grieving, like you're not making the best decisions. Yeah. I think comedy helped me have purpose during a time where I felt extremely lost. I don't really think there's a right or wrong way to grieve. I think there are maybe more or less harmful ways to grieve. I think I could have used a good dose of harm reduction during that time with alcohol and with, you know, personal relationships um, and self-care. There wasn't a ton of that, but I, I am grateful for comedy. I think um, it's hard to imagine how I would have, what else I would have done during that time if I had not done comedy. Maybe I could have done something better than what I did, but I did what I did and I'm grateful for it. Um, yeah, I think it it did harm too. I harmed myself. I, I probably harmed other people, um, not realizing I had the power to do that at that time. Um but yeah, overall, I think it did good things for me. Um, I think of it as a relationship that didn't work out most of the time. You know, there was good things there, but it wasn't fulfilling for me in the end. Right. Um, sorry, that was very profound. Oh, thank you. Uh I hope you're not being hard on yourself there about that because you did you did good things like you in my mind you rose through the ranks of that comedy scene very quickly like weren't you in the Winnipeg Comedy Festival the same year I I was yeah 20 uh 2016 was that too much I started in too Sorry, much, too fast, too soon? Or were you just rocking out on your rise to the top, like, uh, uh, 80s, like, R&B, making it work montage? <laughs> you know, you're trying on expensive clothes, you're just throwing money out of a convertible. Yeah, it was just like that. <laughs> yeah. I think it comes back to those moments where you're looking for someone in the audience and you can't find them. I think I kept feeling that no matter how good I did, no matter what shows or festivals I got in, there were moments of freaking joy and brilliance. And like, I think of the Odd Block Comedy Festival and just being like, holy shit, these people are incredible. Like, how am I here? How am I included in this? It's ridiculous. Um, you know, people, I'm, I will, I refuse to name drop, but people who are a big deal saying, keep doing what you're doing. Oh, but yeah. That, I remember us both just being thrilled when we were doing a, a, a charity thing and we were put in this backstage area with this long table of food and we're like, free food. And then I think we found out later we weren't supposed to eat that food. That food was for other people. <laughs> And I think I personally, like, took out half a thing of chicken fingers. Like, half a <laughs> display dish. Which is also, can you imagine an artfully displayed <laughs> thing of chicken fingers? Oh, my goodness. 
but you know, all these amazing moments that I, I do treasure. And, um, I think they helped me a lot in the moment, but they did again. It wasn't, it was only like a salve over a wound. It wasn't healing in the way that I needed to go and heal. So, you know, it, it was a montage of highs and lows and it's great footage for the movie, but it, it was temporary. And I think I always knew that it was going to be. I mean, okay. Well, first of all, what's the music going on during the montage? (laughs) Shit. I should have thought about the soundtrack. Oh, um, strange. What's that song? Strange days, strange. Oh gosh, I don't know. It. I can't even. I'm hearing it, and I don't know the name. We'll find it. Or we'll put it know, in the back. We'll we'll make up our own song for the end credits, <laughs> like in the '90s when the end credits was always a song about the movie you just watched. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we call that or the Will Smith effect. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, in terms of things you learned from comedy, do you think, like, when I step back and think about it, could you have written the book without first developing your comedic voice on stage? Or do you think that comedy was almost like a misstep where, like, oh, I should have written that book earlier? <laughs> No, I absolutely think the comedy had to have happened for me to tell that story in the way that it was told. I think um, I think it was just one of the great bright spots in a very dark time. And, and it, it walked hand in hand with the darkness and contributed to the darkness. But I think it's uh, fun. I think it's the it, literally the comedic relief in a very sad story i made it like i made i literally needed comedic relief in my life and i so i did it well in a <laughs> i very, didn't wait for anyone else to do it for me in a very carl young way it's it's very much a confrontation of your shadow self like being uh accepting the darkest persona of yourself and then realizing that that's okay. Yeah, I didn't really think of it that way, but I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, Confronting it, and I think many days seeing it, looking at it, running, retreating. Um, And so I think the work that I do now is more embracing it. But you're right. And I, yeah, I mean, and that kind of paves the way for you to uh, accept death just like as a friend mm-hmm. or because we still haven't nailed that down. A sexy friend. No, uh, <laughs> I, I'm... My business is called friend at the end. Should I change it to sexy friend at the end? <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends. It depends who the person modeling is death is mm-hmm. like are they a model are they like a fun dad are they fun dads are sexy i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> right like 
since Carl Reiner died and I have all this time, I've just been watching the Dick Van Dyke show over again. And I'm just like, oh my God. Wow. Get me some of that. <laughs> yeah. Between Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore, I don't know where to look. It's, I don't even remember an episode. I just know I'm having a fun time. No. <laughs> uh, okay. So who... Are there are there people guiding you through this process, both like the initial process of grief, the initial like your guide in stand up comedy and your guide through death doula ing? Huh. You know, um. I think Melanie was a really good guide for me and it's interesting. And I like, I am grateful for the people who also talked about their grief and their loss and their trauma, because it does create this instant community where even if you don't meet them in person, like Tignataro, I found very inspiring because she was very blunt with her trauma and was, but also so clever and kind with it. And so I think um, anyone who talks about their grief um, is part of my, they're my people. Um, so right. yeah, Mel- Melanie was very much a-, a guide for me in the comedy world. And I do like that we talked about John B. Duff because, uh, you know, I got to see him before he died. And I felt like that was a good moment for us too, where this, <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to call him a role model because he'd kick my ass, but like, he, like, you called him the godfather of comedy, and I think he was okay with that term. And, uh, you know, he... Secretly okay. Secretly okay. <laughs> um, and because he had faced a lot of uh, death and loss and trauma and illness, like, you know, he would make fun of literally everyone, including himself. But, you know, he... Whether he liked it or not, whether he was aware of it or not, he made it okay to talk about some of those things, at least to me, because he was a fucking dick about it. And (laughs) (laughs) sorry, I'm swearing, but (laughs) oh, no, this is this is a swear safe podcast. (laughs) This is cuss friendly because he was an asshole and then. It gave me permission to not have to be so gentle sometimes. Um, I did appreciate that because I was always so afraid of hurting people's feelings, of upsetting them, even though I was going to tell my story one way or the other. It's nice to have someone, especially in the movie sense, who takes it maybe too far, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean... Even to talk about bookending it for me, like where our stories kind of intersect is uh, I I left for Toronto around the time I had started talking about like clinical depression and all this stuff. And uh, and like I'd, I'd seen John go through at least three cancers. Uh, but um like my 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 year out here recently 
Like, I spent nine months thinking I had cancer. Uh, oh, that must have been fun. Right? And I didn't really have uh, anyone to talk to about it. And I wasn't handling it well on stage because I was also having blackouts. So that were induced by stress. Mm -hmm. So doing, uh, I was on the same medication as Maria Bamford at one point, And I actually got to talk to her about it, which was amazing. Uh, because I'm, I'm sorry for name dropping, but this is within context is the more stressed out you get on that medication, your brain starts to not even forget words, like just certain words you can't say. Like if I were thinking the word merry-go-round, and I even yeah. saw it in my head, I still couldn't say it out loud. Okay. So all of a sudden I had to rewrite my act on stage in real time and try and hit the same syllable rhythms. And if I got too stressed out, I would black out. Like it was, uh, it was kind of a nightmare. <laughs> so like if it was merry-go-round, would you, like you would panic and would you go like, when you go around like just make noises that you knew were the right no emphasis. it was literally i couldn't move my mouth it was just <sighs> huh. oh my god and then i got on the yeah and uh yeah no so that was nuts and something that really helped me is john was so at peace with that suffering mm -hmm. that it just uh it gave me sort of a template and even uh when i went back to visit him in december like the main reason i came back was to see him before he went because john was a huge influence on me mm -hmm. uh but it was also i still thought i had cancer i didn't know what these blackouts were about uh it was kind of watching and learning and then I found out I have a dissociative brain disorder and bipolar 2. Mm -hmm. And the, literally the same day that he died, when somebody messaged me, it was while I was picking up my bipolar medication. Mm -hmm. So, and that's why I just remember like January 27th. Yeah. A special day for you both. Right? It, no, it's a, it's a, Yeah. It's a very weird thing, but I, I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go for it. I was just going to say, I think that's like a testament to telling your story, even if it's not literally, you know, John was someone who wouldn't necessarily go up on stage and be like, I, I, he wouldn't necessarily be trying to inspire anyone. He didn't give a shit necessarily about trying to be inspiring, but he was honest and I think there were times where he was actually quite vulnerable. And the point being, like, no matter what you're going through, whether it's physical illness, mental illness, grief, loss, relationship ending, being authentic, like, you don't realize the ripple effects that that can have on people. A hundred percent. And even, I don't think, John necessarily wanted to talk to him uh, about himself so much mm -hmm. as he was so interested in creating a safe space for us to work in because he appreciated the craft, uh, to which I have three stories. 
uh, one right after a chemo session when he should have been uh, uh, wiped out. Like uh, he was at the King's Head watching a show and this guy was heckling and he was drunk mm. and he got up in John's face for John trying to shush him. And John, right after a chemo session, grabbed him by the shirt and lifted him up over his head. And put him just to terrify this guy. I'm like, he almost cared about comedy too much. I remember <laughs> when Mike Green started the Rosenby, uh, John came down just to support, but he just kept silently grumbling about how the room wasn't set up right. And then finally in the middle of the show, he he goes and takes a hot stage lamp because he can't he knows how much it's going to burn him but he can't stand the way the lamp is positioned and he moves it with his bare hands uh, and never says anything about it. But uh, almost not related to comedy, but still related to performance is he was also a great amateur magician and he hated people who did card tricks and bars to try and pick people up. Cause, mm -hmm. And I remember him going up to some like sleazy guy that was trying to do that. And he brought his own deck of cards and started out card tricking that guy. <laughs> and then just cussing him out for being like, you don't respect the craft of what's <laughs> happening here. And like, that's John to me. Oh, absolutely. He's going to be a grouch at you, but he's going to give a great hug. Yes. Yes. He, I think he was also quite gentle with a lot of the women in the community and uh, I mean, still sassy as, as hell toward us, but gave, gave me a lot of shit, but also the best hugs. But the card trick is funny because I remember him doing that at a comedy barbecue and show, and then patiently showing people how it's done, you know, taking the time to teach people how to also do it because, you know, he knew it wasn't terribly special but it was impressive, so he would do that. Also, I yeah. remember when he picked me up in his van and told me that he stores dead bodies in it. That was fun. <laughs> that was a fun To date. be fair, he was storing dead bodies. He was working for a, a morgue <laughs> at the time. Yeah. yeah, I heard many interesting stories about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's bring it back to you, though, because uh, sure. I do think it's it's a thing. Because you're the guest. Uh, so what's what's the moment that made you walk away from comedy? or And what's the moment that made you uh, f fall for death? Uh, <laughs> are they the same moment? I'm assuming they're two different moments. They are. And, you know... I could I could make up this poignant moment for the movie where I you know turned my back on comedy, but I never did really. I I just started studying and then I did other things. I didn't really have time for comedy. I didn't have the energy, um, and so that's really it. I mean, I think the movie deserves some somber, heart wrenching moment where. I don't know, like standing outside of the comedy club in the rain and turning my back on it. But it's, that's not that's not honest. It was just a slow shift over time. And 
you know, I think the more, possibly the more poignant and truthful thing is staring at an, a blank notebook and not having jokes that felt good anymore. Um, and I found that the last time I performed comedy, I had some, you know, death-related content, but barely any. And that was really interesting for me. And, and it was, I felt sick. I felt sick performing material that wasn't about my dead friend. And and that's a good thing. I think that shows that I was growing and it was uncomfortable. And I do have a much more like wow moment when I realized that I wanted to work in the death care industry. I will find the right song, but I was listening to a song and walking in a cemetery. <laughs> Do you know what what the song was? Or do you just not feel that the song that was playing was appropriate for the film no. montage that beats? No, it is a good song. It is a piece of classical music, actually. Just trying to remember the name. I'll try and find it as we talk here. But I had um I live really close to a cemetery and I don't know, there's nothing particularly interesting about cemeteries except it's a park with a bunch of dead people in it. And I think what, there wasn't a particular thing that triggered it. It was just a realization that helping people in their grief, I have to do it. And it was almost a, it was almost a heartbreaking moment for me in some ways, because it's, it's deeply difficult to explain, but it's, it's a surrender. It's. A moment where you realize that you've lost in some ways. Because I think culturally and individually, we fight against death. We fight it. We hate it. We see death as a failure. And so the thought of actually working with death and with the dying, you know, is very... Ugh, to a lot of people right like we think of undertakers or funeral directors and those folks and a lot of people think "Ooh, weird weird dark ugh, keep it away from me and I think there was just this moment where I realized it's exactly what I need to do and exactly where I need to be and so it was like a moment of clarity but it was a it was a difficult and emotional moment for me didn't find the song well i mean (laughs) that's that's so important to any story like that's that's the basis of every uh religion and mythos is the uh uh it's the 12-step program it's the five stages of grief it's denial then anger anger pushes you onto the next thing and it's it gets to uh ego death rebirth and enlightenment like you need to go through that before you can pass on to the next stage or the next threshold, which for you is almost literal. It's you transitioning from a comedian into a death doula or death author. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and the important thing to remember about stages, especially the stages of grief, is that they were never written with the intention of being linear either. They're cyclical, you know, and you can go from place to place, stage to stage. 
and it continues on, right? Um, in different ways with, within one loss, they cycle, but we also experience many losses and, um, Oh, there's no point in your life in which you are not in the five stages of grief about something. <laughs> it's true. And yeah. I mean that literally in a very yeah. Freudian way. Yeah. It's, um, it's continuous. And I, like I said, I think the denial of it is robbing us of a key part of what it means to be human. Humans who love. Humans who love also are humans who can grieve. So, you know, of course, no one necessarily, well, I shouldn't say no one. There, There is a, we do glamorize death sometimes, but it's not in a realistic way, you know. Um, love is love, and we talk about love, and it's so great, and etc. But there is a huge gap, I think, when it comes to literacy around grieving and spirituality and death. Which is so funny to me, because in most religions, the reward is death. Death is mm-hmm. when the good thing supposedly happens, right? but we're all terrified of it. And if you go more Eastern with it, there's like, why would you fight death? Death is an eventuality. It's the one thing we know happens for sure. Right. Yeah. And I also, you know, in my personal beliefs, like, I mean, death, I do believe is, is an adventure that no one quite knows how it's going to go. And I also, I worry sometimes about people who are living just to die. You know, I think there is a great opportunity to, yes, accept and embrace death for what it is. But to also, I I find that just because people believe that, that death is a good thing doesn't mean they actually prepare for it well. Doesn't mean they actually communicate well. Um, that's just my, my own thoughts, but to, yes, live knowing that you will die and prepare accordingly. I think it's two parts to that. Right. And the opposite side of that is you can't live like your life doesn't matter because death Mm -hmm. is eventual. You know, your, your whole life is a spiritual expression of the self and Mm -hmm. it, it's important what you do with it. And like, uh, you know, so many religions are like the kingdom of heaven is now, if you want it, like that's supposed to be a huge takeaway, but I don't know. I don't know if people have a middle ground for it because either way they're uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. It is uncomfortable. It's understandable. Excuse me. Hiccup. (laughs) I won't allow it. <laughs> Matt, the song. Take, take it out. <laughs> Do you want to know what song it was? Yes, I, I of course want to know the song. Okay. It's, oh my God. Is that even how you say it? Etude? Is that how you say it? Etude? Etude? Is it E-T space T-U? No, it's E-T-U-D-E. All right. Well, it's more Etude fun if you just... number two by Philip Glass. Oh, Philip Glass. Okay. Well, I mean, that's going to influence how we cut it. (laughs) You know, it's going to be sand passing over time, uh, (laughs) going into a flower that then becomes a glass building that then becomes like 
a civilization that then becomes pollution that then becomes a flood and goes back to the sand. But then you have to put in some like weird clown music. Right. In, in order for it to reflect me as a person. Well, in the middle of the process, like overtone is you going like, you guys, you guys see cats? There's, what are they thinking? I don't know. Uh, and that's fun. But it's also... I think uh, much in the way Kurt Vonnegut structures the story, it's it's uh, it still has the rising and falling, but each act has its own. It there's three stories going on at a time that are all act, uh, rising and falling separately to build one structure. And I think that's that's maybe what you have here to kind of uh, uh, jump between the themes. Um, no, we, we, ju- we just went profound. I, you know what? I have one profound question that we can add on, but I also, like, I don't know if it's a main focus of the movie, but you very specifically said a string of, of affairs. Um, oh, do you really want to go there? Well, no, we, we, don't, <laughs> we don't have to, but how do you see that playing out in the movie? Is it just the, like, as you're leaving, it's like, Dorothy leaving Oz, like, I'll miss you, Scarecrow. Enjoy the heart. I'll miss you, Tin Man. Try to stay out of the rain. Uh, but it's it's like muscle men. <laughs> there were no muscle men. <laughs> I mean, I know that, Jessica. I was there for some of it. But it's a movie now. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, like, in the way I imagine my own movie, it's like they're always we- wearing leather jackets and smoking, you know? Like, they're they're as troubled looking as I felt. Is that how you know someone's troubled? They're wearing a leather jacket and smoking? No, I just think you're a witch from the craft. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard to... It's hard to show celibacy on in a movie. <laughs> you know, there's if someone is celibate from drinking, like, okay, you can see them jumping the booze down. You can see whatever. But yeah, I mean, really in the movie, I see, you know, comedy show and like the hookup and whatever. And it didn't happen enough to make it terribly interesting. But for the sake of the movie, Andrew. It happened well, all the time. And I have to say that, like, both part of the thing that doesn't make it interesting is, like, yes, you're hooking up, which is awesome, but the bathrooms are probably very terrible. Oh, I, yeah, I would never. And so we have to punch those up in the movie just so that everyone feels safe for you. They're just like, <laughs> yeah, get it, girl, and not, like, I'm calling 911 and I don't know what I'm going to say on the other end because I... Because it's a movie, but I'm afraid, and I don't know who to talk to. <laughs> These bathrooms have vomit on them. Because that was real. That's the accurate truth. Is <laughs> oh, or holes someone's... in the wall. Yeah. <laughs> and one light that's like dangling, and a cracked mirror, and I'm just describing the cavern. <laughs> <laughs> So many uh, offensive uh, graffiti things. Oh, and how many times did you have to time the punchline of your joke over a toilet flush? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) The glamour, the glitz. (laughs) 
yeah, it, people who never came out to comedy, they do. They're like, wow. I'm like, well, sure. I'll let you believe what you need to believe. <laughs> right. Just take the compliment, which is so yeah. hard to learn. Uh, <laughs> but I know, like, even for me, and I'm, I'm, I'm reeling it back into the profound. I'm saving this thing, damn it. Uh, is, again, when I found out I had, like, clinical depression and all this stuff. I don't know if I was ready to talk about it, but all of a sudden, again, mental illness is chic. I started getting better gigs. I got to to play a giant casino uh, room suddenly. I, um, I ended up doing, like, a small tour of mental health centers, which, weirdly, is still the best audiences I've ever played, because I could literally talk about anything as dark as I yeah. wanted, and yeah. They just get it. It's it's oddly the safest room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and being in that documentary uh, for CBC, and I just, I didn't want it. I fought it so hard because I did, I wanted to be able to still talk about cats on stage and, and falling down and all the fun stuff. I didn't want to be the sad comedian, mm-hmm. uh, which is part of the huge reason I wanted you on this for two <laughs> for two reasons uh is you uh well one is in about a month I'm going back to Winnipeg to bury my grandfather and I've really only started processing that now even though I found out he <laughs> he wasn't buried four years ago so it's a little bit more of a field trip of memory <laughs> right uh-huh. Um, uh, so, but it, it's weird because it's bringing up the grief again. And then secondly, you kind of gave me strength in that, in, in seeing your whole process, uh, because you kind of took your trauma and, and made it okay in being a part of you. Like, again, to go back to Freud and Jung, like, you just accepted it as part of the the unconscious self. And it seems to have worked out in a really healthy way for you. So, uh, is that what you intended to do? Would you say that's what you did? Um, Hmm. I'm thinking back to the, like, do you remember the very first time we talked? Yes, yes, I did. Yeah, and we talked about death <laughs> on brand. Um, yeah. And I, I think that was interesting because I think that was maybe one of the first times that I realized that people probably needed me to talk about these difficult things. Not just me, but we, we as a collective need to be more open when talking about really difficult things because that, that that way we can connect and build community. And I think what happened was I took that, not just because of you, um, but I, it became, this is a persona almost, right? Like me talking about grief became first, it was therapeutic. It was a coping mechanism. And then it became like, I got media attention. I wrote the book. I did that. And then, you know, it, it became very lonely. Um, it was always lonely, but I think I 
had divorced from myself to the point where I wasn't processing my grief anymore. I was just performing it. I think you can do both, but for a time I was just performing it. And I didn't want to be the girl whose friend is dead. It was a fact about me, but there I knew there were so many more things about me and I was getting worried that that's all the value I had. And even now, like I'm working through that. It's like, who is Jessica? Who am I without those things? Um, and they will always be a part of me, but I'm learning how to celebrate the parts of me that aren't about dead people, that aren't about what what I can give to other people, period. Who am I when no one's clapping? Who am I when no one needs me? Who am I when I'm just alone? And more interestingly lately is who am I when I'm experiencing joy? Because I robbed that of myself for so long. I didn't let myself feel joy because that felt like a betrayal to whomever or whatever. I have no idea if I'm answering your question anymore. (laughs) Oh, no, that's huge. And, uh, you know... Uh, I, I I try and promise the audience that there's going to be one episode where Buddhism doesn't come up, but uh, <laughs> not today. You, you ruined it. You ruined it with your your ego death and your examination of the self. Um, but also, especially dealing with trauma, that stuff resonates uh, with me because you almost you avoid happiness because it's a barometer for how much pain you're in otherwise. It's almost like a depth charger thrown into a lake to see how far down it goes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you, you you kind of avoid it, and it, it you, you stop making uh, choices for happiness because it hurts. Uh, and But no, that's great, because the more you just start choosing, like, what's going to make me happy in this scenario, and you mash the happiness button, uh, you're going to find out more about yourself and you're going to stop feeling bad, to put it uh, bluntly. Something interesting that I've discovered this year is inner child work. And I'll skip over that for the people who are like, please, God, no more. But 2020, my resolution was to have more fun, which things panned out very interestingly. But I, I am having fun. Um, you're having fun right now. Damn it. Jessica. I am having fun right now. (laughs) Absolutely. I am. Um, (laughs) having mandatory fun, the most fun. I'm painting. I'm playing outside. I'm, I'm doing things. I'm getting messy. And I think that if comedy comes back to me, it will be a result of nurturing that part of myself. And stories have highs and they have lows. The The tough things are part of the story. It's what builds the character. It Conflict keeps people interested. Um, but you, for me, for the sake of the main character in this story, she needs to have fun. She needs to find love. She needs to find purpose beyond just the conflict and the pain yes 
Boom. I, you you just hosted this show beautifully. I I abdicate <laughs> Get off my, my show. Uh, yeah. I uh, no, and it's it's kind of interesting because usually the stages of want as as you develop are interesting because as a child you're just like want I want I want and you get a little bit older and you're like teen years and you're like how do I get what I want mm-hmm. and then as you get like last stages of your life it's how do I help someone else but how I, do I give yeah. yeah how do you give and I feel like you did them in the I don't want to say wrong order but you did them in a a, a different order where you gave before you took anything yet. yes and so this is like your your reaping time uh which which is great and and to make it about me as well uh yeah is when i was having those blackouts and and on stage and couldn't say words part of it was i had to accept that i couldn't do comedy right now and spend those like months figuring out who i was if i wasn't uh, a comedian and it was brutal but it was also the first time i ever gave my body a break and almost like checked in with what a physical wreck i was because i was just living in in the the intellect too much Mm -hmm. and it was all about success so it that does make it a more interesting story because we want to see more than we, we want to see conflict, but we also want to see what you learned, what the moral of the story is. Like, that's just as important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, with, um, with resting, it's something that's so underrated culturally and um, resting and or diverting our attention elsewhere, focusing on other things, I think people, especially I would say performers from my experience, are very headstrong in go, go, go. If you don't do this, you will miss out on your opportunity, etc. And I think balance, whatever that looks like to you. I recently found out that my idea of balance is wrong for me. I used to envision balance as going straight down the middle. That's balance. When in reality, I'm the type of person that actually enjoys feeling extremes. I enjoy experiencing all, like, both ends of the spectrum. Um, and then I find what the, the middle of that is for me. Just never trying to feel anything too strongly is not the answer for me. So in terms of rest and work and whatever it is... Um, there is so much opportunity for growth when we don't do the thing we think we're supposed to do. We have to take breaks from it in order to grow holistically. And that's why, you know, I don't perform comedy anymore, but comedy is still a part of me. I still love humor and I'm confident that in some way performing and storytelling will always be a part of my life. Maybe it will be stand-up again. Maybe I'm just taking time away and I'll have a renewed passion for it as a different version of myself. But to if I had just kept pushing, I don't know where I'd be. Maybe I would be on Just for Laughs or some huge comedy tour. 
I don't think so because I don't think I was capable of that. I don't think I had the space in my heart or my life for that. Um, I think what if I would have just burnt out harder and needed even more time to recover. So we culturally don't honor and make space for recovery and rest. And I think that's a mistake. But what do I know? Oh, 100%. Again, this is why I wanted you on the podcast. <laughs> um, uh, just, just for tone's sake, and Matt will probably cut this, is uh, when you when you transitioned into uh, death doulaism, was there anything like in my head? You like went to Hogwarts or became <laughs> Doctor Strange or something <laughs> like that? Is there a version of that in the movie? Like, what parts do you want to punch up and make more exciting? I mean, yeah, I think I think what needs punching up is. You know, okay, we have that moment where I'm like, aha, like, I need to do this. One piece of humor that that did occur is that I was dating someone at the time and I invited him over and I was like, I'm going to become a death doula. And we were standing in my kitchen and I just remember him staring at me and then walking past me to open the fridge to get something and did not say anything. And we broke up shortly after that. <laughs> well, I mean, in some sense, I'm not much better because I remember years ago, you and I having a conversation and like I could see you were in uh, grief pain and I didn't know how to help you. And I remember saying, like, I'm worried you're going to make your whole life about grief. I remember that. Yeah, I was very upset with you. <laughs> right? But now it's sort of like a fuck you. I will make my whole <laughs> like you you really showed me. That's actually why I'm on this podcast. Fuck you, Andrew. Look yeah, at me now. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I'm very unique in the sense that I make people give me gotcha questions. I bring on my own gotcha moments. I'm trying to cancel myself right now and I can't tell if You're it's working. You're so efficient. Or not. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that that idea, that notion, I mean, you cared about me. And I think that statement is actually two things. It is a love, uh, one that you hope is loving. I think the intention was loving. But this is what we do to people when they're grieving we project our fears onto them. We see someone who is expressing their emotions maybe even consumed by them and we are scared of having to look inward and we are scared of also experiencing those things so it's normal it's very normal for people to project like that oh and i was in that cbc documentary about mental illness at the time there's no way i wasn't Mm -hmm. projecting onto you And that's one of the things that I'm so passionate about is helping, not just helping dying people, not just helping grieving people, but helping the people in those person's communities to be better supports to their grief, in their grief. Because it's it's almost like, like I think I mentioned, like it's a illiteracy in grief 
um, and how we, we other people and we, we other our own emotions because they are scary and they are big emotions. And so, yeah, I think we can all do a better job in supporting people. I still have so much to learn. Um, but yes, I do recall you saying that and feeling very alone because I was like, oh, I guess I'm too much. I guess I'm, I sh- no one gets it. Right. You know? Which, which was entirely not my intention, but forever burned into me is the face you made <laughs> because I was just like, oh, I, I've said the wrong thing in a way I've never said the wrong thing before. There's like layers to it. It's like the Big Mac of wrong. <laughs> I just ate a Big Mac. <laughs> this is poetry. Right? I the secreted that. I brought it into existence. And to be fair, what I just realized in right when you and I met, I had just finished going to three separate funerals that month right Right. and yes that's right when we started talking yeah yeah and you were you were grieving and at that point I had no idea how to support someone else in their grief but I think I I think you liked me because I listened I think I just wanted someone else around me that wasn't going to act weird because I was sad yeah because especially then there wasn't the mental health movement that was happening now and it was just like, oh, sadness is a disease or something mm-hmm. instead of a core emotion. Yeah. Thank absolutely. you, Pixar's Inside Out. <laughs> Game changer. Yeah. So um, do you have a, a title in mind for this film? Ooh. Um, oh, boy. Oh, geez. Okay, I have I have possible ones. Okay, or, great. I, I really just have one that's only kind of good for this. Okay. Uh, because, again, I didn't know tone going in. So, like, uh, when you get the light, get off. <laughs> okay. That's kind of a long title, though. When you see you... the light, get off. Hmm. Oh, geez, Andrew, I didn't prepare a title. I know, I know. We'll... We'll think of something. Okay, so. I also uh, love the idea of the title just being like doula or like a one word, like, oof. Yeah, I don't know. Something about tragedy and comedy. No, that's been done yeah. plenty. We'll come back to that. Okay. All right. Um, all right. So let's let's talk our way through the the trailer a little bit. I see like the camera opens on just like the light shining directly into it. And you can kind of hear off in the distance, like Jessica, Jessica, Jessica. And then it turns into Jessica Seaburn and you're on stage. And there's a little bit of fun music. And then you start to do that, like the, the, I lost 15 pounds joke. And then as soon as it said, because my friend died, it like cuts to you at the funeral and like, Either something slamming shut or, you know, 
Yeah. But we're 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 back with you at the the comedy club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then yeah, and then it's like a shot of me like talking with someone like, "Did you like are your jokes for real?" And then like, yeah, and a few more flashbacks. Um keep going, Andrew. But, you're great. At oh, this. and and then you're like, "Oh my god, who's that cute guy at the back?" And uh they're like he kind of looks like your friends like he kind of looks like death they're like no he's just wearing a leather jacket i'm sure he's just deep and wounded <laughs> smash cut to you and the deeply wounded guy like making out in the bathroom yeah and you're both just like this is hot and i don't care anymore but also it's important that this is a well-lit and clean bathroom because there's some rock bottoms I'm just not willing to hit. Um, and I have definitely been on my hands and knees puking in a comedy bathroom. So there's gotta be that's gotta be cut in within those shots of, of me right. descending into darkness. Right. And then you're puking and that shows somebody dropping you off. Probably John Duff going like, you know, I <laughs> I haul dead bodies in this in this truck, and then you're stumbling into the house and you knock over all these lit candles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I'm so on brand right now. As as like curtains start going on fire, and like this is this is like a metaphor for my life that's happening. Okay, then what happens? Uh, uh, okay. Alright, heavy lifting. Then an owl, like, after... There's hot firemen, like, hosing down your house. And that'll be, like, the second in the string of hot hookups. It's just like, you know... And you're just like, yeah, it it was a cat. You know, the funny thing about cats is... And then it just smash cuts to you and the sexy firemen making out in a different bathroom that is still well lit and clean this is very um flea bag it's a bit flea bag isn't it okay have you seen flea bag it is i yes flea bag's great though flea yes flea bag is very marketable right now Uh uh and i think it's in your best financial interest to lean into this but sure we can get into other genres so like you're searching through the the you're like throwing out burnt things from the fire because it's still a metaphor and then an owl drops down with a scroll Ooh! (laughs) and you open the scroll and it's like a a hologram scroll or like a scroll that talks to you like and then i like shove the letter or the hologram into the garbage because i did i have to deny the call right no oh my comedy that's such an inside reference oh my goodness (laughs) yes for this (laughs) no comedy and then i don't know who's the third guy you want to make out in a bathroom with oh um maybe just like a ghost with (laughs) with a ghost okay It's also an indie film, so if you have one famous person in there just to, like, get some buzz going about the film, but they really only have, like, a two-minute cameo, 
How about like Evan Rachel Wood? I am so on board with this. I'm going to make a call that this is the movie that probably makes the most money of any of the movies that have been pitched so far. Uh, you know, and, and that's great because rule of threes, but you also have to change it at the end, so that's hot. Uh, <laughs> Stop fantasizing. Come back to me. <laughs> no, I, I mean, no, I, I swear I was just trying to think about the next bit. Uh. <laughs> okay, so I've denied the the call to become a death doula. I continue my comedy shenanigans, and the death doula school is like, no, we need this. We need her. She's You're, right for us. You know what's great though about uh, Winnipeg and cemeteries is the flooding. Mm-hmm. So that what happens is it floods so much every year that the the coffins sometimes move and shift out of the ground. And then you've got to, like, Tetris, like, I hope I'm putting the thing back in the right box. Absolutely. You have to align things. But even as someone just walking through the cemetery, it's very treacherous. Well, and you're walking in the rain. We know about the the coffin flooding, and you trip over a coffin. And then, like, some sort of sexy uh, groundskeeper, (laughs) like, you hit your head. And you pass out and then you get woken up by this sexy groundskeeper that's like, oh, I'm sorry. You looked so natural here. I thought you were one of the bodies. <laughs> and you're like, I do fit here. Yeah, it makes sense pale. now. <laughs> yeah. And that's how I that's how I decided to become a death doula. In, that, in those moments, and then, I was a corpse myself. <laughs> Yes, and then it, it shows, like, and then the the same owl, like, rests down on the, uh, on a grave by you. And then it just starts playing, like, the dramatic music from Avengers. Okay, I started singing the Harry Potter theme song. Oh, that works, yeah, too. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, we go. And that's when, you know, you have. You have to line up all your ex-lovers and be like, goodbye. You know, I'll always remember what we had, even though I don't know your name, but that's not what it was about. I'll come to your funeral. Yeah, some of them you're like, how dare you? Uh, You know, and you just do that. And, and, uh, ooh, maybe the title could then flash up on the screen, but it's like, doula nature like dual that was a stretch <laughs> I really I hurt myself stretching that hard to get to uh, yeah something like mm, the call of the call of death the, oh man punchline no yeah there's nothing there punchline flatline <laughs> you know what Matt I'm going to leave this one in your hands, what you want to name the episode. And then if anyone is offended, it is your fault. (laughs) I'm sure like literally every person listening to this is yelling so many obvious titles that we just cannot think of. Marketable puns. (laughs) Uh, Jessica Seaburn, thank you for being here. 
uh your your book is called the corner chip mm-hmm. um your 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 social media what are your your ads and handles where can people find you so thank you for having me first of all oh yeah that and too secondly um you can follow me on instagram at retro dress and if you want to check out my website it's friend at the end.ca oh that's that's so good. That Thank you. that could be the title. Friend at the end. Yeah. Well, you know, it depends how you want to use ghosts and stuff, but like <laughs> the beginning is about death, the end is about death. Like you really gave us everything we came for. <laughs> yeah, uh, the name hit me just as quickly as my purpose hit me and I thought it fit very well, if I do say so myself. Yeah, that's that's perfect. Why didn't you lead with that? Why were you toying with me? I mentioned it at some point, but... (laughs) I mean, I should have known that because we are friends, but I don't know (laughs) if it came up in the the podcast because I'm a bad interviewer. Is that what this is about? Yep. Again, that's why I'm on this podcast, to make you feel bad. (laughs) I'm going to say something, and it... Matt might cut it, depending <laughs> on how this goes down. But I'm going to admit, I have never read your book, but it's for a very specific reason. Yeah. So as soon as it came out, within our group of friends, I had two separate groups of friends. The first one to come to me was like, Andrew, don't read it. There's a part that's about you. And not only will you not like it, but it's not your business to judge. And I'm like, I haven't read it yet. Why are you yelling at me? And then the other half were like, none of it is about you, you egomaniac. Leave the book alone. I'm like, I still, it sold out. I couldn't find it, which is true. Her book sold out. Congratulations. It is not about you, but I did use your name as a fake name for someone else. Oops. Does that, is that a thing you can do? Well, your name, no offense, but Andrew's a very common name. Oh, I thought you used Andrew J. Lazat (laughs) as a fake name for someone else. (laughs) Can you imagine? And I also used a a fake phone number that happens to be your real phone number. Weird how that all worked out. No, Andrew, you egomaniac. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Right? (laughs) No, Andrew. Well, I'm, I'm glad that resolved itself. <laughs> and now I, I have some people to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, see? There you have it. So For please read my book. All the, the way to chip. the end. Juicy bits. Um, if people want to buy my book, they can purchase it on McNally Robinson's website or the ebook is on Amazon. Jessica, Andrew? once again, thank you for, <laughs> I'll, I'll buy it, I'll e-reader it, I promise. Thank you for being here, thank you for listening, the audience, and as always, you're welcome. Thank you.
Punch Up Your Life has been a stupid fancy production in partnership with Showbiz Monkeys. The show was hosted and created by Andrew Lazat. You can find Andrew on Twitter and Instagram as at ThinLazat, or check us out on Facebook at Punch Up Your Life. Theme music was composed and performed by Leif Ingerbritsen, photography by Tyra Sweet, and artwork was designed by Todd Graham. The show was produced, edited, fact-checked, and all questions and tangents were researched by me, Matt Ardill. Please remember to like and subscribe, and leave a comment. Let us know which stories you'd like to see get made into a film, or pitch us your own story. Who knows? You could end up being the next guest of the show. Thanks for listening, and remember, you are the hero of your own story.